0: Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build Along. I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch. Season 2 is all about the Fallout role-playing game, and if you still don't have a copy of the rules, check out your local game or bookshop, or if neither of those are an option, check out the Modiphius Entertainment website at modiphius.net. Okay, so when I mentioned last week that we'd be doing a sode this week, several folks asked me why we do that. I made the decision a couple of weeks ago that since I practically killed myself last year trying to work up new podcasts and get ready to celebrate Christmas with my family, I was not going to do that this year. But I do like making sure you've got some new stuff dropping in your podcast feed, so I wanted to give you something. And that something is a megasode of the first three episodes of this season. For those who've just joined us, those were the episodes we used to build out the framework that we're hanging our scenarios on. For those who've already heard them, listen again. You're going to see how much of what we outlined earlier either never showed up in the game or showed up in a modified form. Some of the reasons why we'll get covered in the build post-mortem we do at the end of the season. I'll be back at the end of the third show on this week's edition to set up next week. So until that point, kick back and enjoy our Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along Megasode. Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign Build-Along. I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and this is the podcast where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch that you can run for your group. It's a new season, and we're building for a new system. Well, new system to me, anyway. This season, we're building a campaign for the Fallout role-playing game. Fallout is published by Modifius Entertainment, and you can buy the book at your local game shop or online at modifius.net. I'd also note that this is a game that has special dice for it, so check out your local game shop forum or buy them online when you get your book, which, by the way, you can get in either hardcover or PDF form at the website. And if you're one of those that doesn't like buying game-specific dice, don't worry. I'll provide details on how to make it work with the dice you've already got. Okay, if you were with us from the beginning of last season, you know we spend the first few episodes going over the basics of the rules of the game, lay out our starting campaign location, and building characters. And this season will not be any different. It means this week's episode will be us going over the basics of the rules. And before I get into that, I do want to mention, I realize those of you that were listening to us last session, you realize this episode sounds a little bit different than the others. We're doing a little remodeling, setting up a new studio here at the worldwide headquarters. So for this week and next week, sound's going to probably be a little off, but in three weeks-ish, two weeks-ish, we'll have the new studio up and running and things are not only going to be back to our normal sound quality, but I can assure you they're going to be better. Just a little bit of patience and it will be rewarded. Okay. I'm digressing. Let's get into this. As I go through the episode today, I will be pointing out page numbers from the book, so if you've got a book, follow along. If you don't have a book yet, when you get one, replay this episode and follow along. Now, the Fallout role-playing game is based on the hugely popular video game series Fallout and draws its background and history from the game series. Now, I've been told by most of my players that it's mostly based on Fallout 3 and 4, but there do seem to be some rules that come from the other two games plus the Vegas game that they did as well. For those who haven't played the video games, and up until I decided to run this game, I hadn't played it either. The basics of the background history go like this. Fallout uses an alternate history for the United States after 1945. It's set in a very 1950s retro futuristic style, in architecture, fashion, furnishings, and sci-fi style. Needless to say, the history we know about the United States is all washed away so we can't refer back to that as we go along. The tech of the country is based on a combination of vacuum tubes and nuclear fission, so things look a lot different than what we're accustomed to. And for the most part, I'm not going to get into that. What we need to be aware of is that around 1977, China and the United States started getting really aggressive towards each other, with China taking several countries for themselves, then taking Alaska. There were also various biological wars, with crops taking the hit and both countries suffering for it. Needless to say, what was a cold war became a warm war, which led to the logical conclusion. On October 23rd, 2077, the morning was shattered by full-on nuclear war, which devastated the entire planet. From our various classes in high school and college over the years, we're very well aware of the damages nuclear weapons can cause, so I'm I'm not going to expand on that here. Needless to say, a large portion of the population worldwide died in the initial blasts. Those that didn't die wound up being mutated in some ways, and we'll get into some of that a little later on. However, there were some who'd been fortunate enough to be moved to protective bunkers just before the bombs dropped, and they stayed there for varying amounts of time. They weren't contaminated with radiation, and they eventually emerged from the vaults, as they're called, to try to repopulate the Earth. Of course, there are horror stories about some of the bunkers, and we'll examine some of those as we build our campaign. The finances of Fallout are a little bit different than what we're used to seeing. With the fall of governments, traditional currencies just don't work. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Your group might find pre-war currencies as they search for items they need. That currency is essentially useless, and if you understand currency, you know why. For those of you who might not understand, let's give you a quick primer on currency. The only reason currency works is that it's backed by a valuable metal, typically either silver or gold, and backed by the government issuing the currency. That's the way it works in the US at present, as well as the UK with the pound sterling. The euro is basically backed with the faith of the European Union, so the philosophy is the same. Therefore, with no government to provide precious metals to back a currency with, there's no currency. And there aren't any banks remaining anyway, so it doesn't really matter. So the currency system in Fallout is basically a barter system. Again, we're all familiar with the barter system, so we don't need to expand on that here. Bottle caps are also a valuable trade currency, specifically Nuka-Cola caps. There's a long story there, but basically Nuka-Cola was more popular than both Coke and Pepsi are in our world today, so the caps from the bottles have value in the game. And don't worry about actually creating the caps for your game, unless that's your style. If it's not, and it certainly isn't mine, you can get cardboard caps in the GM's Toolkit, which is also available at your local game shop or from the Modiphius website. It's a big cardboard sheet of caps you can punch out and use for your game. Now, there are some other options if you want some caps. You can buy actual nuca cola caps online. The Modiphius website sells them. There are other sites that sell them that I typically would not even mention here. Um, And there are also folks on Etsy who make caps. It just depends on how many caps you're getting for how much money and how you want to do it. If you don't even want to go that far, just go online and look for like bottling supplies for like bottling your own beer, bottling your own soda, and just get a bag of red bottle caps. My buddy Jim was telling me about it where you could get like a thousand of them for like 15, 20 bucks. Of course, I'd already bought a couple of hundred at a different price when he told me that, but c'est la vie. Another option, If that doesn't sound practical to you, go to your local craft supply store and get a bag of red beads or marbles or whatever little rocks that you would use for decorating with vases or flower pots. You can use those too. It doesn't have to be exact. Just make sure it's red. That's all. Your players will take that leap of faith with you. Okay, so after checking out the basic overview of the setting, it's pretty obvious we're playing a post-apocalyptic game here. Yeah, I know, there are a number of different systems we could use to do that, but if you're a newer GM, this will probably draw in more interested players than some of the others, and I totally concede that it's because of the tie-in to the video games. Look, I'm going to take my gamers wherever I can get them, folks. So with all of that covered, let's get into what I like to call the nuts and bolts of the system. It's a 2d20 system, so that means that most of the major rolls, like attack and whatnot, use 2d20s at minimum. The rules specifically state you'll never roll more than 5 of them, so if you're using your own dice and not the ones specific to the game, you'll want to pull about 5 or 6d20s from your dice bag. D6s are the damage dice for this game, and the book provides a chart on page 29 that you can use if you're not using the custom dice. Again, I bought a couple of sets because I wanted to get immersed into the system, but I also know some folks don't like to buy special dice for games. Like Alton Brown has said on Good Eats on more than one occasion, we don't like unitaskers. Well, when it comes to dice, I do, but I completely get it if you don't. So, to put this into the terms we'll be using throughout the season, let's set this up with an example, shall we? Let's do a skill test, and it's something your players are going to be doing frequently during this campaign. And I'll be using some of the players from my table as the example names, just so we're clear. I didn't ask them for permission, but sometimes it's better to beg forgiveness than ask for permission anyway. The group has come across a band of scavengers who just happen to have some parts that they need to get the robot they're trying to salvage working right. They really need these parts, and they haven't been able to find them anywhere else. So, Scott's going to try to barter with them for what they've got. For the record, Jim and Gabe typically try to play negotiator types, but I'm going to give Scott the spotlight on this one. Since Scott's negotiating, I would ask him to use his charisma plus his barter, since barter happens to be based on charisma. For our purposes, we'll say Scott has a 6 in charisma and a 3 in barter, so that gives him a total of 9. This means that his target number is 9, and he has to roll at least the difficulty level of d20s at or below 9 to succeed. Oh yeah, forgot to mention a minute ago, this is a roll under system, which means rolling equal to or under your target is a success while rolling over it is a failure. I apologize for just now mentioning that. So what's the difficulty of the roll? The GM determines that and it falls between one and five since five is the largest number of D20s you can roll. In my opinion, these parts the scavengers have are very rare, which the group will know because they've been searching for them for days or weeks. And it's a good bet the scavengers know this, so they'll want to drive as hard a bargain as they can. That being said, while I want to challenge the group, I also don't want to set the difficulty so high that there's absolutely no chance of success. So, I think I'll split the difference between making it too easy and way too hard and set the difficulty at three. That means Scott needs three successes for his negotiations to succeed. And for our purposes, Scott failing at the negotiation doesn't mean the group can't get the parts they need. It just means they'll have to pay the asking price rather than a lower price they'd like to pay. So it's not like this negotiation is life or death unless Scott rolls all 20s, but we'll discuss that in a minute. At this point, Scott needs to put together his dice pool. By default, he gets to roll two dice. That's the base for all skill check rolls. He can purchase more dice, but no more than three by spending action points. We'll talk about those a little later. Scott really wants this negotiation to go in the group's favor, so he's going to spend two action points and buy two dice. This means he's rolling four dice and needs three successes. Rolling the dice, he gets a 1, a 10, a 13, and a 3. means he failed, right? Wrong. In Fallout, ones are considered to be critical successes, and critical successes count as two successes. So, he's got three successes, and the negotiations succeed. That's an awful lot of use of the word succeed. I apologize for that. Had any of Scott's dice rolled a 20, there would have been a complication on the action. And again, we'll get into those in a minute. I'm kind of trying to do things in a certain order here. Also, if the skill being used is a tag skill, you get a critical success for any role at or under that number. We'll say for the record that barter is a tag skill, so Scott technically got four successes. Way to go, Scott. Oh, one more thing to do before we give him the result. Every success above the difficulty number needed automatically becomes an action point. So, since Scott needed a 3 and got a 4, we reward the group an action point. Once that's done, I'd roleplay how the negotiation went from that point. Since he succeeded, the group would get the parts for the price they want to pay, and can then get on with the rest of their mission and their day. Now, let's talk for a moment about complications. When a player rolls a 20 on a check, it means a complication has arisen. It doesn't prevent the character from succeeding on the roll so long as they've got enough successes to do so. What it does is bring something into the scenario or campaign that hadn't originally been there. Let's use our example to make this simpler. Had Scott rolled a 20, so long as he still had the four successes, he'd have succeeded at his task. However, I would have had the opportunity to insert something into the game that would be unexpected. Maybe Scott managed to handle his business, but insulted one of the scavengers to the point that the next time these two groups meet, the scavengers aren't going to want to deal with him, or they will refuse to deal with Scott at all. Alternately, it could be a situation where someone from a rival group happens to see the deal from a distance and decides the group has joined forces with the scavengers, making their dealings with other groups a little more difficult. In the case of combat, complications can be things like a gun that jams right after firing that shot that hits. You get the picture. The attempt can succeed, but it can bring something along that will make life a little more difficult in the long run. There's one more kind of skill test I wanted to mention here and it's the difficulty zero test. Now you might be asking yourself, what the, what the heck's a difficulty zero test? Well, it's a test that's so easy or simple, there's basically no way the character can fail the roll, which would mean they wouldn't have to roll dice. It would also mean there's no chance of a complication, so that would also be needed to take into account. We're talking about the very basic of tests here. The type of things that you as a GM would typically just give your players rather than make them roll for them. However, the player can choose to roll for successes on this. Now, why would they want to do this? Well, when no roll is made to succeed, there are also no action points rewarded. So if your players want the action points, they're going to have to roll. The downside to that is that if they roll, complications are brought back onto the table. Fortunately for them, they don't have to roll any successes, so all they're really doing is avoiding complications. For every success they do roll, they get an action point. So that's why your players might decide to roll on a difficulty zero test. Now, of course, you can always decide not to allow that, because your group might be the type that wants to roll for everything, thus bogging down the game in a rolling contest. Your call? Certainly wouldn't blame you for it either way. Another thing to understand about complications is that the GM has the ability to increase the possibility of one depending on the difficulty of the task at hand. So if the action is life-threatening, the GM could increase the range of a complication to 17-20 to or even 16-20. to Now this is a GM option rule that's spelled out in the book, page 17 if you're interested. You don't have to do this, but if you're one that likes to take some big stakes in your game, it's another tool that you can put in your GM's toolbox. Also, if someone on Scott's team wanted to try to help him in his negotiation, say Gabe for example, he could. Especially if Scott wanted to roll more dice, but the group didn't have any action points left. So Gabe would roll 1d20. If he rolls under the target number, it's a success. It adds to the number of successes overall, but it doesn't impact the five dice limit for the primary player in this situation. Also, Gabe's die would be subject to criticals and consequences just like any other roll. Okay, so we've covered the task tests. There are two more I wanna cover in this section, and the first is the opposed test. Now, the most obvious place you'd use this is in combat, especially in hand-to-hand combat, so, Let's get into examples again to explain how these work. The group is being attacked by a group of mole rats. While this might not seem like a big deal to those who don't know Fallout, these little buggers can be deadly. So while the rest of the group seems to be dealing with theirs fairly easily, Jim's gun jammed, so he's stuck with having to deal with this one hand to hand. However, let's say Max finishes his off just as Jim and the mole rat are getting into it, and Max calls out that if Jim can hold him in place, he'll take care of it for him. So Jim's going to grapple with the mole rat. Not advisable typically, but we're doing this as an example. So just roll with it. There is no grapple skill in this game. So this is going to be strength plus either unarmed or athletics. I'd allow either one since one could argue either one would work. Since we're being nice GMs, we'll go with the one that's better for the player. Jim's strength is a six since he's playing a brute type. And he's got two in unarmed and one in athletics. So Jim would be pushing for using unarmed. So let's do that. That puts him in a target number of eight. Since this is an opposed check, rather than randomly selecting the difficulty, I'd roll 2d20 versus Jim's target number. I'd roll my dice and get a one and a seven. That's three successes, so Jim's difficulty will be a three. Of course, he can buy dice with action points, but they don't have any action points. That's okay. I'm gonna jump a bit ahead in my tour of the book here and point out that Jim could still buy himself a couple of more dice. The trade is that I get an action point for each die he buys. Now, Jim doesn't really want to do that, but he also knows that the mole rat gets loose. Somebody's probably going to get hurt. <laughs> the way his luck's been going today, it's going to probably be him. So he very reluctantly buys two dice to bring his pool to four. He rolls a three, a five, an 11, and a 20. So we've got a fail plus a complication. <laughs> now, normally this would be the final result, <laughs> but I know Jim. And there's a rule that allows him to actually succeed on his task. Here's how it works. Jim would be allowed to succeed on holding back the mole rat. Now, he can't use action points to improve it, which is irrelevant in this case since he doesn't have any. The flip side of that is he'd have to take another complication to allow it. So in this case, he'd have two complications. This is a situation where I wouldn't know what to do for one complication, let alone two. As a GM, you'd have this freedom to do pretty much whatever you'd want. Or, there's another option. I can choose to let Jim off the complication hook for two action points for my side. I'd set it up as making a deal with him. And if he didn't accept, then we'd agree to come up with something later. The final test I wanted to cover here is the group test. What, might you ask, is a group test? Tell you what, let's use the example the writers use in the book, because to me, it's the one that makes the most sense at this point. Let's say the group has been split up for a job, and Aniston, Max, Clayton, and Tyler have to try to sneak past a group of super mutants that control the area they're in. There's eight mutants, and the four of them, so we're setting the difficulty at four. Now this is an agility plus sneak role. For the sake of argument, let's say Tyler has the best numbers, with an agility of five and a sneak of four, which gives us a nine. He will take the lead on the roll, which means he starts with 2d20 and gets the chance to buy more with action points. Each of the other three get to roll 1d20 and we'll explain what happens next in a moment. While Tyler feels pretty confident about the group's chances, knowing the average only needs to be one success per person, he's going to hedge his bet and buy three more dice. That means he's rolling 5d20. He rolls a 10, an 18, a 17, a 16, and a 2. So we got one success and we probably hear some swearing from him at this point. Look, I got it. I've been there. Since he got a success, the other three can roll. Aniston gets a one. Critical success, so two successes. Clayton gets a ten, and Max gets a ten. They needed four successes. They only got three. So for me, there's only one outcome here. Somebody was too loud, and I'd rule it as both Clayton and Max since their roles were equal. Needless to say, this sneak task has now become a combat encounter. My suggestion to you, run. Moving along, let's take a more detailed look at action points, since I've mentioned them a dozen times or more to this point. I've mentioned that action points can buy more d20s for rolls, but it's not a straight one point per die buy. The first one is one point, the second is three, the third is six. So in the example we just did, Tyler would have spent 10 action points to try to succeed, which makes that failure that much worse, which would explain the heavy swearing. You can do more than just buy dice with these action points, by the way. You can use a point to ask a single question of the GM about the current situation. However, the GM doesn't have to be specific no matter how specific your question is. The GM does have to be honest though. So vague would be the way to go if you're not gonna go just straight up give them answers two points can be spent to speed up the amount of time it takes to complete a successful test. And by the way, these can be spent after the test is successful, which makes sense because you wouldn't want to spend them until you were certain you succeeded. Basically, the two points allows you to have the amount of time the task takes. In combat, you can spend points to take additional minor actions, major actions, and add extra damage. And the number of points needed depends on the situation. Those are noted in the book, page 18. Now, I do need to point out that there are no rules in the book about being able to hold on to action points. My personal belief is that this is something that was missed when the writers put this together. And I have the errata for the game and they haven't corrected it there. Now I also need to note that as the GM, you have action points you can use as well. The rule states that at the start of each quest you get one point for each character in the group. So for me, I've got seven players. That means I get seven action points to use at the beginning of each quest plus whatever they give me by buying points along the way. These are definitely use or lose during the quest, since they reset at the beginning of the next quest. The last thing I want to hit on in this section, since it can also impact die in interactions, is luck. Luck is not only an attribute, but there are also luck points that can be used during the course of play. At the start of a quest, each player gets a number of luck points equal to their luck attribute. So if Clayton has a luck of 5, he starts each quest with 5 luck points. However, if Aniston had a luck of 1, he only gets 1 luck point at the start of each quest. By the way, that's not actually possible. Lowest score you can start with is a 3. I was just doing it as an example. There are 4 ways you can use luck in the game. Luck of the draw. That allows the player to spend a luck point and gain one helpful fact or detail about the present situation. Let's do an example. Max is out of 308 ammo, and he's the only one with a gun that uses it, so he's out scavenging for ammo. He's not having a lot of luck finding any, so he decides to spend a luck point. Now, as the GM, you could do this in a number of ways, up to and including actually having him find some 308 ammo, though if you do it this way, I'd have him find less than he would have if he thought of the best places to look for it and found some. There's a caveat to luck points, though the GM can choose to not allow the use of luck points for the purpose the player wants to use them for. The prime example of this would be if they're trying to use luck to avoid a situation. In that case, no is a very appropriate response. As an alternative, you could also require spending more luck points to succeed if that's something you think luck points can be used on. Next up is what we've called the stacked deck. This is a pretty simple one. When doing a skill test, the player can spend a point of luck to use their luck attribute instead of the attribute the test calls for. Obviously, this is only a benefit if the luck score is higher than the other attribute, but it's an option if the player wants to use it. Lucky timing is also an option. This is another easy one to understand, and it's a combat-specific option. During a combat round, if the character hasn't already acted, the player can spend a luck point interrupt the initiative order, and take their action for the round. To be clear, this is not an additional action. It's the character's action for the round, just at a different point from their initiative. Last up is misfortune. This is the way you basically make your own luck. What it means is this, for one luck point, the player can reroll one D20 or three D6s. They can spend as many luck points as they want to reroll dice, but the rules specifically state that each die can only be rerolled once. So if you reroll that 20 and get a 19, that die is done. Move on to the next. Now, I know I just said luck points reset at the start of every quest, but there's a way to get some luck back during a quest. If you have a personal trinket, which we'll cover later, one time per quest, you can take time outside of combat to look at your trinket, thinking about the memories tied to it. How long you need to do this is up to the GM, but I'd hope he'd give the players some say-so on this. Once you've done this, you regain one luck point. Alright, those are the basic rules for the game as laid out in Chapter 1 of the Fallout rulebook. But you know me, we're not going to just stop with the basic rules. We have to discuss combat in more detail before I let this episode run out. Of course, we can't talk about combat without first addressing initiative. Initiative works different ways for different games and systems. And if you followed us through our Deadlands game last season, you saw a very different way to do initiative. A character's initiative score is determined at character creation for Fallout. It's perception plus ability. So unless those increase, there's only one other way to increase it, and that's with bonuses from equipment worn or perks utilized. For GMs running creatures, the initiative is figured by adding the body plus mind. For NPC characters, figure it the same as for PCs, though your big bad evil guy will probably have some modifiers. So when stuff's about to go down, here's how we figure out who goes when. Look at the initiative scores. The character, monster, or NPC with the highest score goes first, then go down the list in numerical order until everybody has gone. The rules specifically state that in the case of there being a tie, it's up to the GM to decide it. For me, here's how I do it. If it's a PC tied with a monster or NPC, PC goes first. If it's a tie between monsters or NPCs, pick one and go. If it's a tie between PCs, either make the call yourself or have them do a dice off. Since they're using D6s, have them each roll one and the higher roll goes first. Now, if you've got another way you'd like to try to do this, do it. I've seen rock, paper, scissors used to break ties before. So if that's your style, go with it. And if you're a Big Bang Theory fan, of course, you can use Rock, Paper, Scissors, Lizard, Spock. If you don't get that reference, Google it. Once we get initiative figured out, then we gotta act. There are two types of actions a character can take, minor and major. Each character can take one minor and one major action during combat. The rules state that an additional minor action can be purchased for one action point and an additional major action can be purchased for two action points. However, a single character cannot have more than two minor and two major actions in a given round. Minor actions allow the character to do things like aim their weapon, which allows them to re-roll 1d20 on the first attack roll they take in a round, draw an item that they're carrying, or pick one up off the ground. For the record, they can also put something away, as long as it goes on them somewhere. They can also interact with the environment in a basic way, like opening a door, pushing a button, so on and so forth. Of course, they can move with a minor action. The rules state, though, that they can only move up to one zone, which keeps them within medium range, or if need be, they can move by getting up from prone. They can also use a minor action to take a chem, which can be healing or power boosting in this game. Now, the caveat here is that they need to have already pulled it out to be able to take it. Otherwise, they need to use a minor action to pull it out before they take it. There are a number of major actions you can take in combat, and they're detailed on page 26 of the Fallout book. Check them out there for a full explanation. I mean, come on, if I put everything on here, there'd be no need for you to buy the book. Plus, I'd put myself in a very actionable position with Modiphius, and I really would rather not do that. I do want to specifically cover a few more items from this section in today's show, so let's just keep rolling along. I mentioned the initiative order a moment ago, and I noted there weren't many ways to change that score. However, there is a way a character can go earlier in the round. As I said, if they spend a luck point, they can immediately act, interrupting the initiative order and get their minor or major action. They can still use action points to buy additional actions, but all the usual limits apply. While I told you to read the book for information on combat itself, I did want to make a point about how lethal combat can really be. The weapons in this game can do a lot of damage, and if your characters don't have the chems they need for healing or if they fail their first aid checks, they can potentially be in a world of hurt. I'd also note that critical hits are a distinct possibility, so keep that in mind as you make your way through the wasteland. We'll get into this more as we build, but I wanted to put the thought in your mind as we begin the process. Okay, so we could spend a lot more time going over the specifics of combat. But I think what we'll do is head for the Fallout gamebook and check it out. It's pretty well written and it lays things out in good detail. Plus, we're going to be covering bits of this as we need it as we build. But that being said, it's a really good idea as a GM to be familiar with the concepts, since your group probably won't do things the way we expect them to do. Or my group never does anyway. Anyway, I think that's a pretty good point to end today's show at. Next week we're going to get into character creation. I'll go over the various types available, and we'll discuss what I think might be the way to build a party. I can assure you my group won't do it that way, and yours probably won't either. Don't forget to check out our other podcast, Role Playing History. We've got a new episode up this week, Deep Diving, another topic you didn't know you wanted to know about. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at badgmproductions.com. Net. all fallout role-playing game materials we reference on this program are the property of modifius entertainment through their license with bethesda studios and we use them here for entertainment purposes only the fallout role-playing game is available right now at your local game shop or from the modifius website modifius.net let me spell that out modiphiu dot net. The music we use for the show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build along as a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash Prod, On Twitter at badgmp. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. Email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. Online, our website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we go into the character creation process so we can begin to build our starting area. And for those keeping score at home, we'll start building a campaign right about episode four of this season. But we'll get back into the process next week. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's Campaign build Along. I'm the Bad GM Wayne Davis, and this is the podcast where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch that you can run for your group. It's a new season, and we're building for a new system. Well, a new system to me, anyway. This season, we're building a campaign for the Fallout role-playing game. Fallout is published by Modifius Entertainment, and you can buy the book at your local game shop or online at modifius.net. I'd also note that this is a game that has special dice for it, so check out your local game shop forum or buy them online when you get your book, which, by the way, you can get in either hardcover or PDF form at the website. And if you're one of those that doesn't like buying game-specific dice, don't worry. I'll provide details on how to make it work with the dice you've already got. Okay, if you were with us from the beginning of last season, you know we spend the first few episodes going over the basics of the rules of the game, lay out our starting campaign location, and building characters. And this season will not be any different. It means this week's episode will be us going over the basics of the rules. And before I get into that, I do want to mention, I realize those of you that were listening to us last session, you realize this episode sounds a little bit different than the others. We're doing a little remodeling, setting up a new studio here at the worldwide headquarters. So for this week and next week, sound's going to probably be a little off, but in three weeks-ish, two weeks-ish, we'll have the new studio up and running, and things are not only going to be back to our normal sound quality, but I can assure you they're going to be better. Just a little bit of patience, and it will be rewarded. Okay. I'm digressing. Let's get into this. As I go through the episode today, I will be pointing out page numbers from the book. So if you've got a book, follow along. If you don't have a book yet, when you get one, replay this episode and follow along. Now, the Fallout role playing game is based on the hugely popular video game series Fallout and draws its background and history from the game series. Now, I've been told by most of my players that it's mostly based on Fallout 3 and 4, but there do seem to be some rules that come from the other two games, plus the Vegas game that they did as well. For those who haven't played the video games, and up until I decided to run this game, I hadn't played it either. The basics of the background history go like this. Fallout uses an alternate history for the United States after 1945. It's set in a very 1950s retro futuristic style in architecture, fashion, furnishings, and sci-fi style. Needless to say, the history we know about the United States is all washed away, so we can't refer back to that as we go along. The tech of the country is based on a combination of vacuum tubes and nuclear fission, so things look a lot different than what we're accustomed to. And for the most part, I'm not going to get into that. What we need to be aware of is that around 1977, China and the United States started getting really aggressive towards each other, with China taking several countries for themselves, then taking Alaska. There were also various biological wars, with crops taking the hit and both countries suffering for it. Needless to say, what was a cold war became a warm war, which led to the logical conclusion. On October 23rd, 2077, the morning was shattered by full-on nuclear war, which devastated the entire planet. From our various classes in high school and college over the years, we're very well aware of the damages nuclear weapons can cause, so I'm I'm not going to expand on that here. Needless to say, a large portion of the population worldwide died in the initial blasts. Those that didn't die wound up being mutated in some ways, and we'll get into some of that a little later on. However, there were some who'd been fortunate enough to be moved to protective bunkers just before the bombs dropped, and they stayed there for varying amounts of time. They weren't contaminated with radiation, and they eventually emerged from the vaults, as they're called, to try to repopulate the Earth. Of course, there are horror stories about some of the bunkers, and we'll examine some of those as we build our campaign. The finances of fallout are a little bit different than what we're used to seeing. With the fall of governments, traditional currencies just don't work. That doesn't mean they don't exist. Your group might find pre-war currencies as they search for items they need. That currency is essentially useless, and if you understand currency, you know why. For those of you who might not understand, let's give you a quick primer on currency. The only reason currency works is that it's backed by a valuable metal, typically either silver or gold, and backed by the government issuing the currency. That's the way it works in the U.S. at present, as well as the U.K. with the pound sterling. The euro is basically backed with the faith of the European Union, so the philosophy is the same. Therefore, with no government to provide precious metals to back a currency with, there's no currency. And there aren't any banks remaining anyway, so it doesn't really matter. So the currency system in Fallout is basically a barter system. Again, we're all familiar with the barter system, so we don't need to expand on that here. Bottle caps are also a valuable trade currency, specifically Nuka-Cola caps. There's a long story there, but basically Nuka-Cola was more popular than both Coke and Pepsi are in our world today, so the caps from the bottles have value in the game. And don't worry about actually creating the caps for your game unless that's your style. If it's not, and it certainly isn't mine, you can get cardboard caps in the GM's Toolkit, which is also available at your local game shop or from the Modifius website. It's a big cardboard sheet of caps you can punch out and use for your game. Now, there are some other options if you want some caps. You can buy actual nuca cola caps online. The Modifius website sells them. There are other sites that sell them that I typically would not even mention here. <coughs> so, Um, And there are also folks on Etsy who make caps. It just depends on how many caps you're getting for how much money and how you want to do it. If you don't even want to go that far, just go online and look for like bottling supplies for like bottling your own beer, bottling your own soda, and just get a bag of red bottle caps. My buddy Jim was telling me about it where you could get like a thousand of them for like 15, 20 bucks. Of course, I'd already bought a couple of hundred at a different price when he told me that, but c'est la vie. Another option, if that doesn't sound practical to you, Go to your local craft supply store and get a bag of red beads or marbles or whatever, little rocks that you would use for decorating with vases or flower pots. You can use those too. It doesn't have to be exact. Just make sure it's red. That's all. Your players will take that leap of faith with you. Okay, so after checking out the basic overview of the setting, it's pretty obvious we're playing a post-apocalyptic game here. Yeah, I know, there are a number of different systems we could use to do that, but if you're a newer GM, this will probably draw in more interested players than some of the others, and I totally concede that it's because of the tie-in to the video games. Look, I'm going to take my gamers wherever I can get them, folks. So with all of that covered, let's get into what I like to call the nuts and bolts of the system. It's a 2d20 system, so that means that most of the major rolls, like attack and whatnot, use 2d20s at minimum. The rules specifically state you'll never roll more than 5 of them, so if you're using your own dice and not the ones specific to the game, you'll want to pull about 5 or 6d20s from your dice bag. D6s are the damage dice for this game, and the book provides a chart on page 29 that you can use if you're not using the custom dice. Again, I bought a couple of sets because I wanted to get immersed into the system, but I also know some folks don't like to buy special dice for games. Like Alton Brown has said on Good Eats, in more than one occasion, we don't like unitaskers. Well, when it comes to dice, I do, but I completely get it if you don't. So, to put this into the terms we'll be using throughout the season, let's set this up with an example, shall we? Let's do a skill test and it's something your players are going to be doing frequently during this campaign. And I'll be using some of the players from my table as the example names, just so we're clear. I didn't ask them for permission, but sometimes it's better to beg forgiveness than ask for permission anyway. The group has come across the band of scavengers who just happen to have some parts that they need to get the robot they're trying to salvage working right. They really need these parts and they haven't been able to find them anywhere else. So Scott's gonna try to barter with them for what they've got for the record jim and gabe typically try to play negotiator types but i'm going to give scott the spotlight on this one since scott's negotiating i would ask him to use his charisma plus his barter since barter happens to be based on charisma for our purposes we'll say scott has a six in charisma and a three in barter so that gives him a total of nine this means that his target number is nine and he has to roll at least the difficulty level of d20s at or below nine to succeed Oh yeah, forgot to mention a minute ago, this is a roll under system, which means rolling equal to or under your target is a success while rolling over it is a failure. I apologize for just now mentioning that. So what's the difficulty of the roll? The GM determines that and it falls between one and five since five is the largest number of D20s you can roll. In my opinion, these parts the scavengers have are very rare, which the group will know because they've been searching for them for days or weeks. And it's a good bet the scavengers know this, so they'll want to drive as hard a bargain as they can. That being said, while I want to challenge the group, I also don't want to set the difficulty so high that there's absolutely no chance of success. So, I think I'll split the difference between making it too easy and way too hard and set the difficulty at three. That means Scott needs three successes for his negotiations to succeed. And for our purposes, Scott failing at the negotiation doesn't mean the group can't get the parts they need. It just means they'll have to pay the asking price rather than a lower price they'd like to pay. So it's not like this negotiation is life or death unless Scott rolls all 20s, but we'll discuss that in a minute. At this point, Scott needs to put together his dice pool. By default, he gets to roll two dice. That's the base for all skill check rolls. He can purchase more dice, but no more than three by spending action points. We'll talk about those a little later scott really wants this negotiation to go in the group's favor so he's going to spend two action points and buy two dice this means he's rolling four dice and needs three successes rolling the dice he gets a one a 10 a 13 and a three means he failed right wrong in fallout ones are considered to be critical successes and critical successes count as two successes so he's got three successes and the negotiations succeed That's an awful lot of use of the word succeed. I apologize for that. Had any of Scott's dice rolled a 20, there would have been a complication on the action. And again, we'll get into those in a minute. I'm kind of trying to do things in a certain order here. Also, if the skill being used is a tag skill, you get a critical success for any roll at or under that number. We'll say for the record that barter is a tag skill, so Scott technically got four successes. Way to go, Scott. Oh, one more thing to do before we give him the result. Every success above the difficulty number needed automatically becomes an action point. So, since Scott needed a 3 and got a 4, we reward the group an action point. Once that's done, I'd roleplay how the negotiation went from that point. Since he succeeded, the group would get the parts for the price they want to pay, and can then get on with the rest of their mission and their day. Now, let's talk for a moment about Complications. When a player rolls a 20 on a check, it means a complication has arisen. It doesn't prevent the character from succeeding on the roll so long as they've got enough successes to do so. What it does is bring something into the scenario or campaign that hadn't originally been there. Let's use our example to make this simpler. Had Scott rolled a 20, so long as he still had the four successes, he'd have succeeded at his task. However, I would have had the opportunity to insert something into the game that would be unexpected. Maybe Scott managed to handle his business, but insulted one of the scavengers to the point that the next time these two groups meet, the scavengers aren't going to want to deal with him, or they will refuse to deal with Scott at all. Alternately, it could be a situation where someone from a rival group happens to see the deal from a distance and decides the group has joined forces with the scavengers, making their dealings with other groups a little more difficult. In the case of combat, complications can be things like a gun that jams right after firing that shot that hits. You get the picture. The attempt can succeed, but it can bring something along that will make life a little more difficult in the long run. There's one more kind of skill test I wanted to mention here, and it's the difficulty zero test. Now you might be asking yourself, what the, what the heck's a difficulty zero test? Well, it's a test that's so easy or simple, there's basically no way the character can fail the roll, which would mean they wouldn't have to roll dice. It would also mean there's no chance of a complication, so that would also be needed to take into account. We're talking about the very basic of tests here, the type of things that you as a GM would typically just give your players rather than make them roll for them. However, the player can choose to roll for successes on this. Now, why would they want to do this? Well, when no roll is made to succeed, there are also no action points rewarded. So if your players want the action points, they're going to have to roll. The downside to that is that if they roll, complications are brought back onto the table. Fortunately for them, they don't have to roll any successes, so all they're really doing is avoiding complications. For every success they do roll, they get an action point. So that's why your players might decide to roll on a difficulty zero test. Now, of course, you can always decide not to allow that because your group might be the type that wants to roll for everything, thus bogging down the game in a rolling contest. Jerk certainly wouldn't blame you for it either way. Another thing to understand about complications is that the GM has the ability to increase the possibility of one depending on the difficulty of the task at hand. So if the action is life-threatening, the GM could increase the range of a complication to 17 to 20 or even 16 to 20. Now, this is a GM option rule that's spelled out in the book, page 17 if you're interested. You don't have to do this, but if you're one that likes to take some big stakes in your game, it's another tool that you can put in your GM's toolbox. Also, if someone on Scott's team wanted to try to help him in his negotiation, say Gabe, for example, he could. Especially if Scott wanted to roll more dice, but the group didn't have any action points left. So, Gabe would roll 1d20. If he rolls under the target number, it's a success. It adds to the number of successes overall, but it doesn't impact the five dice limit for the primary player in this situation. Also, Gabe's die would be subject to criticals and consequences, just like any other roll. Okay, so we've covered the task tests. There are two more I want to cover in this section, and the first is the opposed test. Now, the most obvious place you'd use this is in combat, especially in hand-to-hand combat. So... Let's get into examples again to explain how these work. The group is being attacked by a group of mole rats. While this might not seem like a big deal to those who don't know Fallout, these little buggers can be deadly. So while the rest of the group seems to be dealing with theirs fairly easily, Jim's gun jammed, so he's stuck with having to deal with this one hand-to-hand. However, let's say Max finishes his off just as Jim and the mole rat are getting into it, and Max calls out that if Jim can hold him in place, he'll take care of it for him. So Jim's gonna grapple with the mole rat. Not advisable typically, but we're doing this as an example. So just roll with it. There is no grapple skill in this game. So this is gonna be strength plus either unarmed or athletics. I'd allow either one since one could argue either one would work. Since we're being nice GMs, we'll go with the one that's better for the player. Jim's strength is a six since he's playing a brute type and he's got two in unarmed and one in athletics. So Jim would be pushing for using unarmed. So let's do that. That puts him in a target number of 8. Since this is an opposed check, rather than randomly selecting the difficulty, I'd roll 2d20 versus Jim's target number. I'd roll my dice and get a 1 and a 7. That's 3 successes, so Jim's difficulty will be a 3. Of course, he can buy dice with action points, but they don't have any action points. That's okay. I'm going to jump a bit ahead in my tour of the book here and point out that Jim could still buy himself a couple of more dice. The trade is that I get an action point for each die he buys. Now, Jim doesn't really wanna do that, but he also knows that the mole rat gets loose. Somebody's probably gonna get hurt. <laughs> the way his luck's been going today, it's gonna to probably be him. So he very reluctantly buys two dice to bring his pool to four. He rolls a three, a five, an 11, and a 20. So we've got a fail plus a complication. <laughs> now, normally this would be the final result, <laughs> but I know Jim and there's a rule that allows him to actually succeed on his task. Here's how it works. Jim would be allowed to succeed on holding back the mole rat. Now, he can't use action points to improve it, which is irrelevant in this case since he doesn't have any. The flip side of that is he'd have to take another complication to allow it. So in this case, he'd have two complications. This is a situation where I wouldn't know what to do for one complication, let alone two. As a GM, you'd have this freedom to do pretty much whatever you'd want. Or, there's another option. I can choose to let Jim off the complication hook for two action points for my side. I'd set it up as making a deal with him, and if he didn't accept, then we'd agree to come up with something later. The final test I wanted to cover here is the group test. What, might you ask, is a group test? Tell you what, let's use the example the writers use in the book, because to me, it's the one that makes the most sense at this point. Let's say the group has been split up for a job, and Aniston, Max, Clayton, and Tyler have to try to sneak past a group of super mutants that control the area they're in. There's eight mutants and the four of them, so we're setting the difficulty at four. Now this is an agility plus sneak role. For the sake of argument, let's say Tyler has the best numbers with an agility of five and a sneak of four, which gives us a nine. He will take the lead on the roll, which means he starts with 2d20 and gets the chance to buy more with action points. Each of the other three get to roll 1d20, and we'll explain what happens next in a moment. While Tyler feels pretty confident about the group's chances, knowing the average only needs to be one success per person, he's going to hedge his bet and buy three more dice. That means he's rolling 5d20. He rolls a 10, an 18, a 17, a 16, and a 2. So we got one success, and we probably hear some swearing from him at this point. Look, I got it. I've been there. Since he got a success, the other three can roll. Aniston gets a one. Critical success, so two successes. Clayton gets a ten, and Max gets a ten. They needed four successes. They only got three. So for me, there's only one outcome here. Somebody was too loud, and I'd rule it as both Clayton and Max since their roles were equal. Needless to say, this sneak task has now become a combat encounter. My suggestion to you, run. Moving along, let's take a more detailed look at action points, since I've mentioned them a dozen times or more to this point. I've mentioned that action points can buy more d20s for rolls, but it's not a straight one point per die buy. The first one is one point, the second is three, the third is six. So in the example we just did, Tyler would have spent 10 action points to try to succeed, which makes that failure that much worse, which would explain the heavy swearing. You can do more than just buy dice with these action points, by the way. You can use a point to ask a single question of the GM about the current situation. However, the GM doesn't have to be specific no matter how specific your question is. The GM does have to be honest though. So vague would be the way to go if you're not gonna go just straight up give them answers two points can be spent to speed up the amount of time it takes to complete a successful test. And by the way, these can be spent after the test is successful, which makes sense because you wouldn't want to spend them until you were certain you succeeded. Basically, the two points allows you to have the amount of time the task takes. In combat, you can spend points to take additional minor actions, major actions, and add extra damage. And the number of points needed depends on the situation. Those are noted in the book, page 18. Now, I do need to point out that there are no rules in the book about being able to hold on to action points. My personal belief is that this is something that was missed when the writers put this together. And I have the errata for the game and they haven't corrected it there. Now I also need to note that as the GM, you have action points you can use as well. The rule states that at the start of each quest you get one point for each character in the group. So for me, I've got seven players. That means I get seven action points to use at the beginning of each quest plus whatever they give me by buying points along the way. These are definitely use or lose during the quest, since they reset at the beginning of the next quest. The last thing I want to hit on in this section, since it can also impact die in interactions, is luck. Luck is not only an attribute, but there are also luck points that can be used during the course of play. At the start of a quest, each player gets a number of luck points equal to their luck attribute. So, if Clayton has a luck of 5, he starts each quest with 5 luck points. However, if Aniston had a luck of 1, he only gets 1 luck point at the start of each quest. By the way, that's not actually possible. Lowest score you can start with is a 3. I was just doing it as an example. There are four ways you can use luck in the game. Luck of the draw. That allows the player to spend a luck point and gain one helpful fact or detail about the present situation. Let's do an example. Max is out of 308 ammo, and he's the only one with a gun that uses it. So he's out scavenging for ammo. He's not having a lot of luck finding any, so he decides to spend a luck point. Now, as the GM, you could do this in a number of ways, up to and including actually having him find some 308 ammo. Though if you do it this way, I'd have him find less than he would have if he thought of the best places to look for it and found some. There's a caveat to luck points, though the GM can choose to not allow the use of luck points for the purpose the player wants to use them for. The prime example of this would be if they're trying to use luck to avoid a situation. In that case, no is a very appropriate response. As an alternative, you could also require spending more luck points to succeed if that's something you think luck points can be used on. Next up is what we've called the stacked deck. This is a pretty simple one. When doing a skill test, the player can spend a point of luck to use their luck attribute instead of the attribute the test calls for. Obviously this is only a benefit if the luck score is higher than the other attribute, but it's an option if the player wants to use it. Lucky timing is also an option. This is another easy one to understand and it's a combat specific option. During a combat round, if the character hasn't already acted, the player can spend a luck point, interrupt the initiative order and take their action for the round. To be clear, this is not an additional action. It's the character's action for the round, just at a different point from their initiative. Last up is misfortune. This is the way you basically make your own luck. What it means is this, for one luck point, the player can reroll one D20 or three D6s. They can spend as many luck points as they want to reroll dice, but the rules specifically state that each die can only be rerolled once So if you re-roll that 20 and get a 19, that die is done, move on to the next. Now, I know I just said luck points reset at the start of every quest, but there's a way to get some luck back during a quest. If you have a personal trinket, which we'll cover later, one time per quest, you can take time outside of combat to look at your trinket, thinking about the memories tied to it. How long you need to do this is up to the GM, but I'd hope he'd give the players some say so on this. Once you've done this, you regain one luck point. Alright, those are the basic rules for the game as laid out in Chapter 1 of the Fallout rulebook. But, you know me, we're not going to just stop with the basic rules. We have to discuss combat in more detail before I let this episode run out. Of course, we can't talk about combat without first addressing initiative. Initiative works different ways for different games and systems, and if you followed us through our Deadlands game last season, you saw a very different way to do initiative. A character's initiative score is determined at character creation for Fallout. It's perception plus ability. So unless those increase, there's only one other way to increase it, and that's with bonuses from equipment worn or perks utilized. For GMs running creatures, the initiative is figured by adding the body plus mind. For NPC characters, figure it the same as for PCs, though your big bad evil guy will probably have some modifiers. So when stuff's about to go down, here's how we figure out who goes when. Look at the initiative scores. The character, monster, or NPC with the highest score goes first, then go down the list in numerical order until everybody has gone. The rules specifically state that in the case of there being a tie, it's up to the GM to decide it. For me, here's how I'd do it. If it's a PC tied with a monster or NPC, PC goes first. If it's a tie between monsters or NPCs, pick one and go. If it's a tie between PCs, either make the call yourself or have them do a dice off. Since they're using D6s, have them each roll one and the higher roll goes first now if you've got another way you'd like to try to do this do it i've seen rock paper scissors used to break ties before so if that's your style go with it and if you're a big bang theory fan of course you can use rock paper scissors lizard spock if you don't get that reference google it once we get initiative figured out then we got to act there are two types of actions a character can take minor and major each character can take one minor and one major action during combat the rules state that an additional minor action can be purchased for one action point and an additional major action can be purchased for two action points. However, a single character cannot have more than two minor and two major actions in a given round. Minor actions allow the character to do things like aim their weapon, which allows them to re roll 1d20 on the first attack roll they take in a round, draw an item that they're carrying or pick one up off the ground, For the record, they can also put something away, as long as it goes on them somewhere. They can also interact with the environment in a basic way, like opening a door, pushing a button, and so on and so forth. Of course, they can move with a minor action. The rules state, though, that they can only move up to one zone, which keeps them within medium range, or, if need be, they can move by getting up from prone. They can also use a minor action to take a chem, which can be healing or power boosting in this game. Now the caveat here is that they need to have already pulled it out to be able to take it. Otherwise, they need to use a minor action to pull it out before they take it. There are a number of major actions you can take in combat, and they're detailed on page 26 of the Fallout book. Check them out there for a full explanation. I mean, come on, if I put everything on here, there'd be no need for you to buy the book. Plus, I'd put myself in a very actionable position with Modiphius, and I really would rather not do that. I do want to specifically cover a few more items from this section in today's show, so let's just keep rolling along. I mentioned the initiative order a moment ago, and I noted there weren't many ways to change that score. However, there is a way a character can go earlier in the round. As I said, if they spend a luck point, they can immediately act, interrupting the initiative order and get their minor or major action. They can still use action points to buy additional actions, but all the usual limits apply. While I told you to read the book for information on combat itself, I did want to make a point about how lethal combat can really be. The weapons in this game can do a lot of damage, and if your characters don't have the chems they need for healing, or if they fail their first aid checks, they could potentially be in a world of hurt. I'd also note that critical hits are a distinct possibility, so keep that in mind as you make your way through the wasteland. We'll get into this more as we build, but I wanted to put the thought in your mind as we begin the process. Okay, so we could spend a lot more time going over the specifics of combat, but I think what we'll do is head for the Fallout gamebook and check it out. It's pretty well written and it lays things out in good detail. Plus, we're gonna be covering bits of this as we need it as we build. But that being said, it's a really good idea as a GM to be familiar with the concepts since your group probably won't do things the way we expect them to do. Or my group never does anyway. Anyway, I think that's a pretty good point to end today's show at. Next week, we're going to get into character creation. I'll go over the various types available and we'll discuss what I think might be the way to build a party. I can assure you, my group won't do it that way and yours probably won't either. Don't forget to check out our other podcast, Roleplaying History. We've got a new episode up this week, Deep Diving, another topic you didn't know you wanted to know about. Roleplaying History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at badgmproductions.com. Net. All Fallout role-playing game materials we reference on this program are the property of Modiphius Entertainment through their license with Bethesda Studios, and we use them here for entertainment purposes only. The Fallout role-playing game is available right now at your local game shop or from the Modiphius website, Modiphius.net. Let me spell that out: modiphiu snet The music we use for the show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs. Bad GM's campaign build along as a production of Bad GM Productions. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash badgmprod. On Twitter at badgmp. YouTube, Bad GM Productions. Tumblr, Bad GM Productions. Email us, badgmproductions at gmail.com. Online, our website, badgmproductions.net. Next week, we go into the character creation process so we can begin to build our starting area. And for those keeping score at home, we'll start building a campaign right about episode four of this season, but we'll get back into the process next week. Until then, I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. Hey folks, welcome to Bad GM's campaign build Along. I'm the Bad GM, Wayne Davis, and this is the show where we build an entire campaign for you from scratch that you can use for your group whenever you want. This season, we're building a game for the Fallout role-playing game, so grab your copy of the rulebook and keep it handy, because we'll reference it from time to time during the show. By the way, if you don't have a copy, head over to your local game shop or bookstore, or grab a copy online from the Modiphius Entertainment website, modiphius.org. Since we're into Episode 3 of the new season, this is the point where we get into our actual setting creation. If you think back to last season, we built an entire starting city for you to use in the game, then we expanded into the wilder world of Deadlands. This time around, we're going to do things a bit differently. If you're at all familiar with the Fallout video game, and if you're not, then here's a free plug for Bethesda, the company that currently produces the game, might I suggest you check out Fallout 3 or Fallout 4 and get yourself familiar with it. There are also various YouTube videos out there that'll bring you up to speed if need be. Sorry, I got derailed there for a second. If you're at all familiar with the Fallout video games, there's a lot of back history and locations that the various titles used. The TLDR on this is that Fallout 4, and therefore the Fallout role-playing game, uses what they call the Commonwealth as its setting. For those of us aware of U.S. geography, the Commonwealth consists of Boston, Cambridge, and the surrounding area of those cities in Massachusetts. Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with that setting. I'm I'm personally very fond of the history in that region of the United States. We can also note that Fallout: Vegas uses the Las Vegas area in Nevada for its setting, and Fallout 3 sets their stuff primarily in California. Now, as I've noted in more than one episode of both of my podcasts, I live in the metropolitan St. Louis area in the Midwest of the United States. So for the purposes of this show, we're building our campaign in that part of the country. That being said, feel free to set our campaign wherever you want. Leave it in the Commonwealth if you want, or adapt and adjust it to where you live. I've seen mods online where folks have adapted it to London, Frankfurt, New Delhi, and other locales around the world. My goal is to make what we're doing easy for you to lift out and drop into classic locations where you live. However, since I am setting it in St. Louis, if you're curious about some of these locations I'll be mentioning as we go along, you can Google search them and get an idea of what they look like today in the real world, as well as get some background history on them, which I plan to integrate into the campaign as we roll along. Now, I've gone back and forth a hundred different times since I decided to set my campaign in St. Louis about maps. When I first started, I had a map of the Metro St. Louis area I'd found online, and I was marking in where I wanted various things to go. Then a month or so ago, a friend of the show and Bad GM Productions family member, Justin Moore, sent me a map a friend of his had worked up that was an actual Fallout map of the St. Louis area. However, when I went to print it out for use in creating the setting, I was having difficulties getting it to print properly. In the meanwhile, I'd lost the original map I'd been using. So, I'm back to square one and building a setting for the campaign. That's good for you, though, since I'll be detailing what I'm doing while I'm doing it. The very first thing I want to do is lay out the landmarks and buildings that most visitors to the area or casual observers of the area would know and or recognize. The Gateway Arch, Busch Stadium, Forest Park, Bevo Mill, and the Anheuser-Busch Brewery are five that come to mind immediately. Now there are way more than that, obviously, but these five will have a special or important quality or use in game. Next, I need to decide how much area I want to build out to start the game. Truth be told, before it's all said and done, we'll probably use some of the area on the eastern side of the Mississippi River, but I'm not going to worry about that at the start because I don't intend to go that way for quite some time, which gives me some time to decide what we're going to need. I also know that the group may need to head west at some point, and by west I mean out of the city of St. Louis, St. Louis County, by the way those are separate entities just for the record, and head into what's called St. Charles County. Again though, that's down the line north? That's always a possibility as well, though I know we're going to use the north side of the city basically from the beginning, and I don't plan on the group going any further south than the southern St. Louis County line. That being said, plans can and do change. Again, if any of what I'm saying doesn't make sense because it's specific to my hometown area, just put it into terms that relate to where you're from or an area that you're particularly fond of and know enough about to set a story in. So with the basic outline of the area we're going to use in mind, it's time to decide how we're going to use the five landmarks I named up front. Now, the Gateway Arch is going to look a bit different in our timeline than it does in reality. Again, Fallout has a 1950s retro future feel to it. So things are gonna look a lot different. In this game, the arch has a bit of a steampunk feel to it. Instead of being sheer smooth sides, there's almost a bit of Eiffel Tower style rivets and bolts to it, along with small ledges running about every 45 to 50 feet. The big change to the arch would be the very large antenna mounted on the arch curve at the top. Those don't exist in the real world, but in the Fallout world, they were mounted on there during World War II and were modified when the Cold War with the Chinese began to heat up. Again, there are some retro futuristic designs utilized in the antenna, and I'm going to leave the specifics of that up to you, because what I see in my head when I mention it might not be what you see, and I always believe in you running things how you see them. Let's move on to discussing Busch Stadium. For those not in the know, that's the home field for the St. Louis Cardinals, who just happen to be the National League Baseball team with the most World Series championships. Yes, I know, Yankees fans, your team's won more overall than anyone. Thank you for the reminder. Anyway, the current stadium already has a bit of a retro feel to it, due primarily to it being designed by the same group that designed Camden Yards in Baltimore, among other stadiums. For me, though, we're gonna go even more retro than that. Cause see, this version of Bush Stadium is the third stadium to carry the name. For our design, we're going back to the original Bush Stadium, which was known as Sportsman Park for the majority of its life. Now, if you want retro, that's retro. Wooden bleachers that aren't a ton of rows deep, spacious field and foul lines. It gives that 1940s, 1950s feel to it. And since Sportsman's Park was still being used in the 1950s, because it wasn't destroyed until the late 1960s, and had been built in the early 1920s, it's entirely plausible that the park was standing when the bombs were dropped. Granted, in the real world, the park wouldn't be in the spot the current stadium is in, but we're going to take a little creative license and work with what we've got. For our purposes, Vault 63 was built under the outfield of the stadium, and therefore the stadium itself turned into a de facto city when the vault dwellers exited and began scavenging the city for resources. Yes, this is our campaign equivalent to Fallout 4's Diamond City, but we'll have another city in a stadium coming up later. Maybe not in today's episode, but we'll cover it in another show. I can tell you that my group has one vault dweller, and this will be the vault he came out of. I'll probably put a couple more vaults in other strategic locations around the area, but since I plan on starting the game in the heart of downtown, we only need the single vault at this time. Next up is working Forest Park into the equation. Again, for those not from the area, Forest Park is an exceptionally large section of greenery on the edge of the St. Louis city limits. Located on the western edge of the city, it's bordered by Interstate 64 to the south, Barnes Jewish Hospital to the east, Washington University to the west, and houses and small businesses to the north. It contains the St. Louis Zoo, the Missouri History Museum, the Jewel Box, which has a great collection of flowers and plants, the Muni Theater, which is an outdoor theater that brings in Broadway-quality plays and musicals all summer long, and the Art Museum, There are tons of bike trails, ponds, and other spots around the park, which makes all of this fertile ground for, well, something. My overall theory here is that some of the animals from the zoo survived the bombs. Heavily full of radiation, they've mutated. Worse still, they've escaped the zoo and used the park as their hunting grounds. The only thing keeping them inside the park is some sort of fencing system that causes them excruciating pain if they try to cross the border. It's going to be along the same lines as an invisible fence you'd use for your dog, only with the power cranked up about 100 times stronger due to the dangerous nature of some of the animals in the zoo. I'm still working up the specifics on this, but we've got enough to start with. Bevo Mill is located on the southern border of the city and was where a great many of the German immigrants who settled in St. Louis happened to settle. There's actually a windmill in the area, and the area gets its name from that. For the record, the windmill doesn't work. For years, it did contain a restaurant frequented by many of the area's big names. That restaurant closed years ago, but the windmill remains for the moment. In our game, Bevo Mill was still a functioning restaurant when the bombs dropped. I see it as a damaged yet still useful base for someone or something. We'll probably put a scavenger team in here, or depending on how long it takes to get down here, some super mutants or synths or something. That's all to be decided a little later on. Last on this list is the Anheuser-Busch Brewery. Pretty sure there's a whole lot of you that might know this one. For those who don't, it's one of the largest breweries not only in the United States, but the world. It was acquired by InBev several years back, but is still pumping out a whole lot of Budweiser and other popular beers. Now, we're going to change the brewery for our game. Since it's so gosh darn big, I've decided that this would be the plant in the Midwest that would be cranking out Nuca cola We'll go with the InBev purchase, since it would be well before the bombs dropped, and we'll just move along with InBev deciding that instead of beer, the population wants Nuca cola If you happen to be familiar with the video game, you know how right that thought is. Now, with that particular change, comes another change I need to make. Directly west of the Anheuser-Busch Brewery is the old Lemp Brewery and Mansion. In reality, the brewery hasn't been run in decades. In fact, the Lemp Mansion on the property is used as a restaurant, but also a venue for parties and other events. However, in the game, we'll use the Lemp Brewery, much like Fallout 4 uses the Gwinnett Brewery. I'll even work up some names for some of the beers, but again, we'll, we'll get to that. Another Fallout 4 touch we'll be bringing into the campaign are Red Rocket gas stations. In the video game, they seem to be pretty much everywhere. Now, St. Louis has a real world equal to this with the Quick Trip brand, so swapping out Quick Trip for Red Rocket is a pretty easy choice. Oh, and if you don't know what a Quick Trip station is, look up Quick Trip online and check it out. Okay, so we've got a few locations scouted out and figured out for this campaign. What about some of the groups and organizations? (laughs) Unlike last season, this time around, I know who and what our big bad evil guy is before we ever roll our first die. However, since I know the bulk of my group listens to this podcast, I'm not going to get into too many details. I will say it's a corporation, which gives us a whole lot of fertile ground to play on. At this point, though, I'm not going to go any further than that. If you're curious, hit me up on the socials and I'll lay out what I've got worked up to this point. Now, I've created a few brands of my own for the campaign. Tasty Brew is going to be the name of the brewery that set up shop at Lemp. Just makes it easier for me to do it that way. Fundamental, with the F-U-N capitalized, is a line of kids toys that became exceptionally popular in the year or so before the bombs dropped. They're a mix of the old KB toys and F.A.O. Schwartz, and their stores have a very distinctive fun in neon on the building. Again, this is going to give us some interesting areas for the group to play in. Garson Tactical was a manufacturer of firearms, ammunition, and other tactical supplies for the U.S. Army during the war. Their factory was on the north side of the city, but it was also a primary target of bombs when the first nukes were dropped. That doesn't mean there isn't stuff there to find, it just means that even all these years later, there's so much radiation there that there aren't too many scavengers with the guts to go digging there. There might also be an interesting encounter or two for the brave soul who decides to try it. Next up is Fatties. Fatties was founded by Franklin Fatty Monroe and is the classic 1950s style drive-in restaurant. It had car hops and poodle skirts on roller skates and was the place to be for hamburgers, french fries, fries or chips as our friends in the UK call them, and milkshakes. Again, these are spots that might be fertile ground for scavenging. So, we've got locations. How about some groups for our adventurers to run into? Well, we'll start with the crew. That's K-R-E-W. These are scavenger types who grew up in the shadow of what in the real world is the dome at America's center. The area was overrun within days of the blasts, and a decent majority of the folks who entered it were protected because of all the falling debris from surrounding buildings covering up holes in the dome, as well as blocking off all the exits. Needless to say, when you've got that many people in a space like that, groups will form to basically protect their turf and their families. The crew is mostly super mutants, for reasons we'll explore during the game itself. However, there are some regular folks in the group that are used to handle the more delicate negotiations, since not everything in life can be solved with the application of brute force. Sorry about that. As our campaign begins, the crew basically runs the dome in several blocks around it. And yes, I'm going to put the dome into the setting. I'm not sure exactly what that's going to look like yet, but I'm working on it, and I'll have Gabe post a picture to the website when I find something that matches the vision I have in my head. High Intelligence is the next group on our list. For the record, they don't call themselves that. The name comes from those who've had dealings with them. The group's actual name is Technical Security Services by Intelligent Beings, which should tell you exactly what we're dealing with. Robots. Somewhere along the line, several of these robots were reprogrammed, but some of the original programming wasn't completely wiped. So over the course of time and multiple upgrades, the robots gained sentience. The group's goals are to hoard information, hoard supplies, and hoard bottle caps, and they have robots searching piles of rubble all over the city on the regular looking for supplies. I was originally going to put the headquarters for high intelligence in the old Soulard Market on the south side of downtown, but we're going to actually wind up starting our campaign there. So I'm going to have to relocate it and I'll let you know where I'm going to put that at a later time because the group is going to run into high intelligence pretty early on in the campaign. Next up is Marvin's Carvins. It's a weird name, but uh, then again, so is Marvin. He's a scavenger, but over time he soaked up enough radiation that he's about a half step away from being a ghoul. Somewhere along the line, he decided he's on a mission from God to save humanity. His method of saving them is by killing them. And he's got a group of devoted followers willing to assist him in his goals. Marvin's Carvins operate all over the downtown area, so our group will most likely have multiple run-ins with them. I don't have a definite base of operations for Marvin just yet, but like with some of the other things we've detailed today, we really don't need that to get started. So we detailed what's going on in Forest Park. What I didn't mention is the zookeeper. It's a Mr. Handy whose programming malfunctioned. Nobody's been able to figure out how or why, but it happened, and when it did, he took over the entirety of Forest Park and is most likely the individual who cooked up the system for keeping the animals in. However, it's also known that a couple of the animals get out from time to time, so some folks are curious as to whether it's accidental or intentional. I don't have a definite personality for the zookeeper worked out yet, but you can bet it's going to be a little off. Last up are the Fraternal Brothers of Humanity. These are a group of vault dwellers who came from Vault 63, but decided not to join the others in building the community there. They are exceptionally anti-robot, anti-ghoul, and basically anti-anybody who didn't come from a vault. Run-ins with the FBH pretty much are always violent, since they'll typically shoot first and answer questions later. Their base of operations is in the city's central west end, though again I haven't nailed down an exact location. They do scavenge around the downtown area frequently, though, so our group will most likely have a run-in or two with them early on in the game. Okay, so we have the basics of a setting nailed down, which will be enough for us to start building our campaign. We'll start doing that next week. Before we do that, though, I'll introduce you to the characters in my campaign, so you'll have an idea of who's who when we do our recaps as the show rolls along. Again, though, we're going to do all of that next week. I do have a note on all of that, though. Rather than drop in some sort of one-shot or of another system during the break between finishing the Deadlands game and the official start of my Fallout game, which is in January, my group requested a test game so that we could get all comfortable with the rules before we started playing in the campaign. To make that possible, I purchased the PDF of the Fallout starter kit from the Modiphius website, and it has an adventure module in it. I'm running that adventure, and the original idea was to run it then wipe the slate clean for the start of the campaign. However, after our game the last go-around, the majority of the group asked if it would be possible for them to keep all of their gains for the start of the new campaign, and I have decided to allow it. So, for those of you starting from scratch on a campaign, the way we're going to do the build is going to it's going to work for you because I'm going to build it for you to run from scratch. And then I will make modifications as need be because my group will be higher level as they start. It's not a big deal. I just want to make sure that you're aware that the recaps are going to sound a little different than the build again, because the group's going to go in at a higher level. Okay. So I think we've reached a pretty good stop point for today's show. So let's just go ahead and wrap this up. If you're searching for more gaming content, might I suggest our other fine podcast, Role Playing History. This week we do a deep dive into the Amber Diceless role-playing game, and it's not only a very different style of role-playing game, but also a very interesting one to play. Role-playing history is available wherever you get your podcasts or from our website badgmproductions.net. All Fallout role-playing game materials referenced on this show are the trademark and copyrighted property of Modiphius Entertainment, through their license with Bethesda Games, and they are used here for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in this or any of their other fine games, you can pick them up at your local game shop or from their website, dot net. The music we use for this show comes from pixabay.com. Check them out for all your license-free, royalty-free music needs bad gm's campaign build along is a production of bad gm productions check us out on facebook at facebook.com forward slash gaming forward slash bad gm prod on twitter at bad gmp youtube and tumblr it's bad gm productions you can email us bad productions at gmail.com and online the website is bad next week we build <laughs> Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis, and I'll see you at the game table. And that's going to do it for this week's Megasode. Next week, we'll be back with a brand new episode. And since we're really getting into the end game, you're going to want to be here to see where we go next. In the meantime, check out Role Playing History. This week, we're doing a Megasode for that show as well, and it's the D&D History episode and the list of the 50 most popular games of all time, according to Arcane Magazine. Role Playing History is available wherever you get your podcasts or on our website, badgmproductions.net. I'm not going to do the fallout credit here since it's already been in the show three times today, but I do need to change this. Bad GM's campaign build along is a production of Bad GM Productions. We do have quite the presence on social media now, so check out the info box for this episode or on the website to see where you can follow us. Next week, we take another step along the end game of this campaign, and you are not going to want to miss it. That's next week. Until then, I'm the bad GM, Wayne Davis. I'll see you at the game table.